You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Jtown. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. Continuing our series through the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be at the end of chapter 9 this morning, so if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and we'll read a small select few verses. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38 should be on the screen and in your bulletin as well. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful to wake up this morning and I saw rain on the the ground and on the streets and just really grateful for it. And this morning I pray that just as the ground was thirsty for the water, that you would whet our appetite for your word this morning. God, may we taste of it, experience the goodness of who Jesus is for us this morning. May we leave filled. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So something you probably hear every single pastor say is, they have a love for books, right? And I'm no different than that. I, I love books. So I'm regularly on Amazon looking at books for what's the next thing I want to read or what are things that are coming out. And something that has caught my attention lately as I've been doing some research on Amazon for the next book that I'm going to read is that there are a handful of books that have come out with some rendition of the title of Recapture the Wonder. All right, so it's Sort of a new and updated way of saying get back to the basics from everything that I can gather from these books. So we get stuck in the weeds of life or faith, and so we need to recapture the wonder, the essence of these very things. Get back to the basics. And as I was looking into one of these different books, one of these different titles, they had a book description that stood out to me. It says this, Break free from the weariness and cynicism of life to enjoy, and then it moves on to the whole topic that this book was going to be about. But the two words that stood out to me were weariness and cynicism, all right? So this morning, we're going to be talking about missions. And some of us get really excited. We get geeked out when it comes to missions, all right? Like, finally, we're talking about missions, a sermon that's fully devoted to missions. But for others of us, Maybe most of us, the words weariness and cynicism might be the things that spring up inside of us when we hear the word missions. So weariness from things like angst, angst of sharing our faith with other people. There are so many hot button topics nowadays that if we, we think, if we step into this idea of sharing our faith with someone else, it's just going to end up in a debate And so we're weary before we even step into the act of it, right? We're worn out. Or your mind is filled with all the I shoulds or the I oughts. 
And you're living with this low-grade guilt or shame because you know you're not doing enough. So you're just, you're weary before you even step into the game. Maybe you're on the other side of the coin, and then you have some cynicism that's going on inside of your heart, right? You stepped into it, you've tried this, and things didn't work. So, for instance, my wife and I, um, a few Christmases ago, for a couple of years, we, we always make Christmas cookies, the ones that you get and decorate with all the icing and stuff. And so we thought, we're going to make extras, and we'll go around to our neighbors, give them a little handful bag of cookies, and invite them to the Christmas Eve service. So we did this. We got it all ready. We went to our next door neighbor, knocked on the door. They opened. They took the cookies. Very kind. They had different plans for Christmas Eve. So we went on our way. But it's as if they called all of our neighbors and told them that we were coming. Because every door that we knocked on, I mean, it's the middle of the day on a Saturday and no one opens their door. I mean, for two consecutive years, this happened. Like, it wasn't just a one-time instance. This was something that happened over and over. Maybe that's you, and so you're just kind of cynical. It, it doesn't work. I, I've tried different things, and people just aren't open to it. Weariness and cynicism have set in. So here's what I'm wanting to do this morning, all right? We're going to be, I was, when we originally planned out this whole series, we're supposed to look at the end of chapter 9 and a good chunk of chapter 10. But this morning, like, what I want to do is I just want to spend the majority of our time in the end of chapter 9. Because in there, I think we get the context, we come back to the essentials, the basic roots, recapturing the wonder of God's mission. So as we open up and we look at these four verses, here's two things that I think we're going to find. One, I think we're going to identify the motive of God's mission. Their very heart, the foundation of why we have a missional God. And then second, I think you see the initial action step of God's mission. The first way that we can step in and begin to participate in the work that he's doing and drawing people to himself. All right? So we find the motive of God's mission in the first two verses. I'm going to reread that for us, refresh our minds, and then we'll dive in. Matthew 9, 35 and 36. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus is doing what he's been doing for the previous two chapters and a good chunk of the Gospel of Matthew. He's going around, he's teaching, preaching, and healing from town to town throughout the nation of Israel. Wherever Jesus goes, he's always followed by a crowd. They're always approaching him. And notice Jesus' response to the crowd. When Jesus saw the crowds, he what? Felt compassion for them. Now, here's what stood out to me as I was studying this passage this week, all right? Matthew leads with what Jesus felt, not with what Jesus said. Matthew leads with what Jesus felt. Not with what Jesus said. So Matthew is one of the twelve. He would have been physically present with Jesus whenever this whole thing occurred. I mean, he was there in real life experience. And I don't know about you, but um, 
Usually, whenever I remember words that are said to me, it's followed or it's preceded by someone's emotions. So I, I had great parents growing up. They regularly told me how proud of me they were. But the instances that I remember were always the ones that were preceded by a huge smile on their face or crocodile tears in their eyes. And so that Jesus, God in the flesh, felt for the crowds, left an obvious impression on Matthew and his life. Now, that Jesus felt his only good news based on the emotion that he experienced whenever he saw the crowds, right? So what was it he experienced? Compassion. Why did he experience compassion? Well, Matthew records that the crowds were distressed and dejected like a sheep without a shepherd. The picture here is a crowd who's barely making it. Some Bibles translate it that they were confused, that they were helpless, and condense this idea, this illustration of a sheep without a shepherd is aimless. So it's, it's like someone's trying, like this crowd is trying to function after a massive car wreck. All right? So I, I used to work on staff at Sojourn Midtown like six years ago. And whenever I was on a lunch break, I was driving down Eastern Parkway to go back to the office. And as I was driving, there was a car ahead of me, oncoming traffic that was coming. car swerves in front of them, causes the car that's in front of me to drive directly into a telephone pole. And the telephone pole falls on top of the car. And smoke is immediately starting to come out of the engine. So the people that are in the car get out. Um, The person that's in the passenger side gets out and sits right next to the car. Completely disoriented. What's just happened? So there are a few of us that were out of our cars, literally had to pick this woman up to move her away from the car to get her to safety because she's so disoriented of what just happened. It seems that's how Jesus is experiencing the crowds as they're coming to him. They're hurt, they're they're dejected, they're aimless, like they're completely disoriented and we get some inferences for why this is the case some of it we can already infer from what we've unpacked the previous few weeks so they're dealing with these ongoing diseases and illnesses right so they're coming to Jesus because they have no other place to go I mean a woman that has a bleeding disorder for 12 years is not like she didn't go somewhere to try to get help for that 12 years right no like she went But there was nobody else. She was literally at her wit's end trying to find a single piece of hope. And that's Jesus. So they're they're dealing with all the brokenness and mess physically that this world brings. Secondly, they're living under the Roman Empire. And so the, the empty promises of living in the Roman Empire have had their effect on God's people. So Matthew himself is someone that has bought into this promise of power and wealth in the Roman Empire becoming a tax collector. Someone that has literally turned his back on his own people in order to be a thief, to steal from them, to live under the promises of the empire. But Matthew obviously has turned and followed Jesus. So he found them unfulfilling. And the crowds were filled with people that were just like Matthew. And then finally, 
They had religious leaders that were taking more than they were giving to God's people. This sheep without a shepherd is actually an illustration back from Ezekiel 34, where God says of His shepherds, the leaders of His people, You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. So the crowds are coming to Jesus, distressed, dejected. They're hobbled, they're hurting, and they're completely disoriented by life. And Jesus' response, notice what it's not. It's not irritation. Haven't you, haven't you listened to what I've said? Like, why haven't you got this thing figured out yet? It's not Jesus' response. He's not annoyed. Oh, can't I just finally have a little piece of break? Like, he's not, with, he's not like us with our kids when they come with their repetitive questions. Like, oh, I just need a break from the voice, right? It's not Jesus' response. No, Jesus feels compassion. His heart literally goes out to them. His heart breaks. Sympathy beats within Christ's chest for the crowd. It's here where we find the motive of God's mission. It's His compassion and it's His love for us. It's not obligation. It's not out of disgust. It's His compassion. So, one of the greatest composers of all time is Beethoven. I'm not trying to minimize your knowledge there, but he knows that, right? So, well, when Beethoven was 30, he wrote a symphony, Symphony Number no. 5. It's the one, bum, 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 bum. Everybody, I mean, you know that. Just from four dumb words, bum. Like, you know what that is, right? So, obviously, incredibly well-known piece of music. And it's one of the best, if not the best, crescendos in all of music. So, crescendo is the highest moment of a musical buildup, right? So, all the orchestra together, intensely playing their music at the height of this song. So at the time, whenever Beethoven wrote this piece of music, um, his hearing loss was rapidly declining, and he was just beginning to let people know about it. So he wrote in a letter to a friend about him writing this piece. It just is almost like his vengeance against this idea of losing his hearing. And he, he writes to his friend, I wrote the piece to seize fate by the throat. It shall not bend or crush me completely. So here's the compassion of our God. How moved He is by our hobbledness, our pain, our hurt, and our disorientation. That our God has seized death by the throat by sending Jesus Instead of crushing us, crush Jesus in our place. That is the compassion and the love that our God has shown us. Our God has always been moving towards us with a motive of love. But we see it physically, like in our face, in a life 
and ministry of Jesus. 1 John 4 says this, God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's not like God has this other card in His hand that He's waiting to play in case this Jesus thing doesn't work out. No, God held nothing back in His pursuit of us whenever He sent His Son. There's a song that we sing here, Yet not I, but through Christ in me by City of Light. And the opening words always grip me at the very beginning of that song. It says, when, What a gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. The pockets of heaven are literally turned inside out because there is nothing left to give because Jesus, God in the flesh, came into the world, moved towards us in mission because of His compassion and His love for us. And if there's anything that the Bible tells us about the love of God, it's that it is permanent, not elusive. We've been going through our men's and women's studies here just trying to marinate in a few different passages that are critical to our faith. And one of those is Ephesians chapter 3, and it reads like this, I pray that He may grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being, through His Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, what's being rooted and established in love, or because you are already rooted, you are already established in His love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, all God's people, what is the length and width, height in depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So in sending Jesus and moving towards us with compassion and love, God's love for us is not elusive. Now, is God placing His mailbox in cement? Your, his love is firmly established inside of you. There's literally nothing you can do to add to it or take away from it. God has done all of the work. If we're trying to recapture the essence of God's mission, it starts right here. That God moves towards us with compassion and love. It's a very motive of all the work that He's done in His pursuit of us. In Christ, God's love is established in us. It's permanent. There's nothing that you can do to take away from it. It's too good not to share. It's too good not to share. The whole point, the whole reason that He invites us in. He, we experience the love of God in order to be sent out to share the love of God with other people. So that's the motive. What's the first action step? Right? We, we find it in the, the, second two ver- the last two verses of chapter 9. It says this. 
And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So, Matthew experiences the emotions of Jesus, and then he records the words of Jesus, and Jesus turns back to his disciples and says, there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work to do. Now, if I was standing there physically present, here's the words that I would anticipate after hearing that from Jesus. We just got to work harder. We got to get out there and get the job done. Got to pull up our boots by the straps and get out there and get it done. But that's not what Jesus says here, is it? No. Jesus' instructions pray. Pray. Prayer is the heartbeat of God's mission. There's been a number of pastors that have tried to figure out, okay, what are the, the antidotes to revival that we can see over the course of human history? And the only thing that they can agree on is extraordinary prayer. And so here's what we can collect from that. Where there is prayer, there is mission. Where there's little prayer, there's little mission. What stands out about this passage is not that Jesus calls his disciples to pray, but it's one of the few instances throughout all of Scripture that we see him actually give his disciples the content to pray. Which means we have to pay closer attention to the words that he's sharing here, right? So, two things. He mentions harvest and then sending out workers. So, a couple of things about harvest. First, he says that the harvest is abundant. The harvest is abundant. I function as if there are few workers, but there's also little harvest. That's the natural disposition of my heart. From my own personal experience and just the way that I'm wired. But that's not what Jesus says. No, he says the harvest is abundant. The issue is not the largeness of the opportunity, but it's the limitedness of my own personal prayer. The initial step of joining God in His mission, going to the harvest that is abundant, is stepping in and praying. It's our initial step. And He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest, because it's His harvest. So it's not a shocker that Jesus tells us to pray to God. But it's interesting that he uses the word harvest because a harvest is, some, is a work that's nearly completed. Right? So something that's almost completely done by somebody else. So in a few chapters later, Matthew 13, Jesus is going to share this parable of the sower. And like breaking news, the sower is God himself. Right? So God Himself is the one that's going out and He's casting the seed. He's the one that's tilling the soil. He's the one that's casting the seed. He's the one that's supplying the water. The opportunity that He presents to us is that we go out into the harvest and all we do is collect. Our God is the one that goes before us to do the work of mission. Our invitation is to merely join Him in doing it. That we step out into the harvest that is abundant and we merely collect 
through the prayer that we've initially stepped into to bring in this ripe harvest that He's been working before us. God's the one that does the work of His mission, not you and me. But yet, He does invite us. He sends out His workers. He he instructs us to pray that God would send out His workers into His harvest. So the first thing is the word send out here. It literally means thrust out. So it assumes that there are already people in place. It's praying that God would push them out into the fields. So it's not a call for us to recruit or that God needs to go recruit for himself. No, like God's already gone before us. He's doing the work of the mission. This is God's mission. He's merely inviting us to participate in it. And the thing that he's doing by us praying is he's pushing those people out into his fields. And the second thing is the word worker. So workers are, workers are a pretty general term, but it's something that should stand out to us. So it's not the highly skilled experts it's not the most eloquent in speech. It's not the best leaders amongst the herd, right? No, it's just the simple, obedient workers that Jesus thrusts into his harvest fields to bring in the harvest of the work that he's already doing. Our initial step is to step in and pray. And then we get to participate in bringing in the good work of the harvest that God has done before us. He's gone before us. We get to be in it and participate in it with Him. So there's two things, two applications that I want for us this morning and then we'll close. The first one, receive the compassion of the God that moves towards you. God gripped the throat of death for you and crushed Jesus in your place. Insert your name. He feels deeply for you. You might, might the, the pushback might be, yeah, but it's for the crowds. But if there's anything that the story of Zacchaeus teaches us when it comes to Jesus is that you do not get lost in the crowd. Jesus sees you, he knows your pain, and he's moved towards you. All you need to do is to receive his compassion, his love. The second thing, step in and pray. Now, there's a challenge here, but I want to celebrate something first, all right? So we have a tendency to be hard on ourselves. And I think one of the ways that we can be hard on ourselves is the mission within the church. But I want to celebrate a way that I think we're actually killing it when it comes to mission. You all do a phenomenal job of sharing the gospel in your homes. Every single time we have a baptism Sunday now, it's always filled with your kids being baptized by their dads in the waters and sharing their testimony of faith with our church body. You're doing a phenomenal job of sharing the gospel in your homes. I, I have two inquiries about it in my email right now. Like, y'all, you're doing a phenomenal job. I think the challenge for us is we begin to look outside of our homes. Our God is a God who is outward. He's moved towards us. 
So the challenge for us is for us to be aware, to be recognize the people that God has placed in our lives and that we begin to pray for them by name. So immediately after communion here, we're going to do our little prayer groups that we do on Sundays. I asked Elliot on Friday to move this to after the sermon so we can do an initial step, an immediate application of praying for those people that might be in our lives that don't know Jesus yet. I want us to do that this morning before we leave. So we'll practice, participate in God's mission before we leave. But think about it. Think, think about the people that God has placed in your life here and now in order for you to pray for them by name that we may join God, participate in his mission, the mission of his compassion and his love for those that are lost. But here's how I want to close, all right? So Matthew chapter 9, see the motive of God's mission, see the first action step of God's mission. But what happens in chapter 10 is those people that Jesus instructs to pray are the ones that he's pushing out into the harvest. So the prayer of chapter 9 is a really dangerous prayer because what seems to happen is that whenever we pray for those that are lost in our life, that we can't help but not go. That was a double negative, I think. So you get what I'm saying, though, right? We can't help but go. Uh, so, like, a few years ago, we, we did a series in the book of Acts. So... One of those sermons at the very beginning, Pastor Law was preaching on Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And the verse says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And somewhere in that sermon, Lyle mentioned that God sends all of us. We are all sent people. He sends every single one of us. Some of us, that's our, our home. Some of us, that's our neighborhood. Some of us, that's our coworkers, our families. The list goes on and on, like here in our own city. But for some of us, that means he's sending us literally out away from this place to go to places in need of the good news of Jesus Christ. As Pastor Lyle was preaching on that sermon, he, he, ends, he ended with the question, where is God telling you to go? In the middle of that sermon, I just felt like this quiet voice in my own soul saying, I don't think you're supposed to stay here. So I sat on that for a little while, but about a year later from that, I just began to feel a lot of restlessness inside of me. A lot of restlessness. And so I, I started talking about that with Cherish. I started talking about it with Lyle thankful for his willingness to sit down and just talk openly about that with us. It felt like God was telling us to go. I, I just didn't know where. So are we just supposed to pick up our family and move to just some place? No. That wasn't the first step that we did. Cherish and I just started to pray. I mean, every night when our, our heads hit the pillow, we just began to pray. And that restlessness has done nothing but grow in me over that two years. And so at the beginning of this year, we really begin to explore, okay, what are the opportunities that the Lord has really placed before us? What might he be opening for us? And we knew that we always wanted something to do with church planting. We, it's something that Sojourn is kind of a church planting incubator. Like we sent out a lot of people to go plant. So it's just been driven deep inside of me. And so at the very beginning, we 
from the outset, we just felt like, man, we want something to do with church planting. And there's been a lot of open and closed doors over the last year, but it seems like the Lord is opening a door for us to go plant a church in St. Louis. So at the end of July, Cherish and I went and visited St. Louis. We visited a church planter that was there in St. Louis. And so he's driving us around the city. Um, like St. Louis sort of stood out to us. My, my mom's side of the family is from St. Louis. I grew up go, or from Missouri. We, ended up, we went to St. Louis a lot. So there's just like a natural affinity within my own heart for the city of St. Louis. There's a lot of things that we really learned while we were there, though. So I um, knew that it was a gateway city. It was like the, the gateway city to the West back in the early parts of American history. But what we were surprised that we learned while we were there is that there's only one evangelical church per 7,700 people that live in the city of St. Louis. And even that's a pretty skewed number because a lot of those churches are on the decline towards their own death, closing the doors because attendance is just basically dwindled down to a few and they can't provide the utilities for the facility. Like we were driving around a, a few neighborhoods that were equal about the size of Jefferson Town. There was one evangelical church that we saw and had a for sale sign in the front yard. 18% less than 18% of the city of St. Louis would even affiliate themselves with an evangelical church. So like priesters, people that attend on Christmas and Easter, only 18% of the whole city would even affiliate themselves with like being a priester, somebody that would attend church on Christmas or Easter throughout the whole city of St. Louis. We asked the guy that we were meeting with in the last five years, how many people have come in to plant a church in the city of St. Louis, and it took him like seconds, and he said three to five, three to five people. So you have this decline of churches in the city of St. Louis, a growing population, and very few people that are coming in to plant churches in order to take the gospel to the city of St. Louis. And so our last day in the city, we parked at a a park, Francis Park, kind of in an area, strategic location of where we're looking to go plant. And Cherish and I walked the park, and we were just praying, doing the same thing that we've been doing for a couple of years at this point. And it just felt confirming that the Lord was calling us to this city, to this area, to go plant a church. And so we're in the process of looking towards, moving towards that. So um, we have about eight to nine months of the rest of the time that we're going to serve here on staff here at Sojourn J-Town in June of 2020. We're going to be transitioning off off staff and going and looking to move into the city of St. Louis in order to begin the the starting works of planting a church. And there's a mixture of emotions for us in that, all right? So it's really exciting. It seems like the Lord has opened opportunities for us to go out into the harvest, and we're praying that the harvest would be abundant. But we're also really scared. We're really sad. Because you're our family. But we have to go. We have to go. 
So that question that Lyle had at the end of his sermon, where's God telling you to go? It's the same question I want to leave you with this morning. Is it your home? Is it your neighbors? Your family? For some of you, it's going to be that. Some of you, as you pray that, He's going to tell you to go. Have the courage to follow. It starts with prayer. And wrestle with the question, where is God telling me to go? Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful. I don't even feel like grateful is a good enough word for the love and compassion that you've shown me by moving towards me and loving me. Literally standing in my place to receive the punishment that I deserve, God, so that I might be a part of your family. And every single one of us that have responded to the gospel, that is our story. You've invited us in, but as you invite us in, you bring us in to send us out. So God, may we be a people that participate with you in your mission. I pray that you would stir a deep love for those people that are lost from you. And that we would go out into your harvest that is abundant and that we would see that the harvest is ripe and we bring in a large harvest. Where we lack compassion, where we lack love, may we grow. We are cut from the same cloth as you now because you invited us in and we are part of your family. Lord of the harvest, send out the workers into your harvest field. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.